Okay, so this week's, this week's Torah portions are very interesting. We have two Torah portions that are called, one is called Nitzavim, very short, 30 verses. And then there is one called Vayelach, which is 40 verses. Actually, I reversed it. The first one's 40 verses, and the second one is 30 verses. So I wanted to share with you something very interesting. When we talk about the Torah portions, I've shared with you previously that because we finish all the Torah portions in the cycle of one year, so therefore sometimes we end up doubling two Torah portions. So there are, And then we do it specifically in certain weeks, which would align us to read certain portions before certain holidays. However, there's something unique about these two Torah portions. These two Torah portions are not two that are read together as one. They're actually one Torah portion, which only in a unique situation do we divide them into. So there was a great, great sage and Kabbalist. He lived about 17 generations ago. And he's known by his book, the initials of his book. He wrote a book called The Two Tablets of the Covenant. And therefore, he's called the Shiloh HaKadosh, the Holy Shiloh, because the letter Shin Lamed Hey is the acronym for Shnei Luchot Habrit. And he talks about the Torah portions, the number of the Torah portions as Gan Parshiot. So parshiot means portions, and the word gan literally means garden, the garden of the portions. And the reason he uses that word garden, because the two letters, the two Hebrew letters that make up the word garden, gan, gimel, nun, equals 53. Now, what's interesting is that were you to sit down and literally count all the Torah portions, you will realize that there are 54 Torah portions. Thus, the question is, how can you refer to it as Gan Parshiot? 53, garden. And the answer is, as I was sharing with you, that Nitzavim and Vayelech are actually one portion which uniquely are divided into two. And that is why... For those who have the Chumash, you'll see that after every Torah portion, it tells you how many verses there is in that Torah portion. And then it tells you a sign, some mystical word, which is the numerical value of that Torah portion. Thus, if you look after Nitzavim, it says 40 verses. If you look after the second portion, Vayelech, it only says 70 verses. And if you count the second portion, it's 30 verses. Thus, you see that this sage, when it came to giving the number of the second portion, he doesn't even give the number of it as a portion for itself, but only as the totality of the two portions. So if these two portions are really one portion, why would we ever divide them? We don't divide them this year, but why do we divide them? And to understand the answer to this, 
It's because what I'm about to share with you in the opening verse of Parshat Nitzavim, it says, Atim Nitzavim Hayom, Moses tells the Jewish people, you stand today before God entering into a covenant. And the Zohar, quoted very often in Hasidah, says that on a mystical dimension, that word today refers to Rosh Hashanah. And thus, that's one of the reasons why the portion itself, we always want to read the Shabbat before Rosh Hashanah. Now, if you look at your calendar, we're going to be finishing the Torah on Simchat Torah, right? The last day following the holiday Sukkot. Now, on Simchat Torah, we read the last portion, which are the blessings that Moses gave the Jewish people. Zot Habracha. Then, between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, there must be also a Shabbat because there are 10 days from Rosh Hashanah to Yom Kippur, that Shabbat is called Shabbat Teshuvah. So we're going to have normally the last two Torah portions, which is Ha'azinu and Zot Habracha, will take place after Rosh Hashanah up to Simchat Torah. However, some years we're going to have a Shabbat also in between Yom Kippur and Sukkot. There are four days in between Yom Kippur and Sukkot. Yom Kippur is on the 10th day of the month, and Sukkot starts on the 15th day of the month. And sometimes in between those days, you'll have a Shabbat. And now we have a problem. Because what are we going to read? Therefore, in such situations, we separate Nitzavim and Vayelech. So Nitzavim will be the Shabbat before Rosh Hashanah. Vayelech will be the Shabbat in between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Ha'azinu will be the Shabbat in such years between Yom Kippur and Sukkot. And then we'll finish the Torah on Simchat Torah. Now, parenthetically speaking, there's always a Shabbat on Sukkot. But as you already know, when we have a Shabbat on the holiday, for example, Sukkot, Pesach, or any such thing, we don't read the annual cycle portion. We read especially holiday portion. So the Shabbat on Sukkot won't be a problem. The only issues we have with the annual order would be the Shabbat between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. And if there is a Shabbat between Yom Kippur and Sukkot, and then the final, the final reading is done on the holiday of Simchat Torah. So a year like this where we have no such issue, there is no Shabbat in between Yom Kippur and Sukkot. Therefore, we have the Netzavim and Vayelech as one Torah portion. So now you know the inside story on why we say there's 53 portions. If when you count them, there's 54 portions, it's because the two portions we read this week is really counted as one portion. Split only in a situation where we need it because of an extra Shabbat between, between Yom Kippur and Sukkot. Now, this Torah portion, both of them are very brief. 
you'll remember that last week we read a very, very tough reading. The sixth reading had 98 different warnings of retribution. And if you don't listen, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, and it goes on to 98. There are 98. God, Moses warns us, you won't listen, and this will happen, and this will happen. 98 different things. Therefore, in this Torah portion, Moses is entering us into the covenant, and he's also referring us to, listen, you're going to ask, how do I survive? 98 retributions. We're all doomed to death. Doesn't the verse say, Ein isha shelo There is no person who does not sin. We're humans. We're programmed to kind of fall away from listening to God. And with all these retributions, we stand no chance. And thus you'll see that Moses in this week's Torah portion says, but listen, over the past 40 years, have you not tested God again and again? You made a golden calf less than 40 days after you heard directly from God not to do idol worship. And yet you're still standing. So God finds his ways to retract from us atonement and cleansing in a fashion that we do not become annihilated. So that's what's taking place. Moses is warning us, you're entering into a covenant, stay faithful. We start like, oh my God, well, how will ever survive? And Moses lets us know you'll survive. So now let's go through what's going on here. Simply speaking, as you're going to see in the second portion, Moses says, today I am 120 years old. Moses lived 120 complete years. He was born on the 7th of Adar, and he passed on the 7th of Adar. So simply speaking, Moses at this point is at literally at the end of his life. So when he says, you are standing today, what he simply means when he says the word today is that Moses, knowing that he was going to leave the Jewish people physically, and therefore, he was going to hand them over to Joshua, his student, who would now take over leadership. And therefore, we find again and again that the righteous leaders, so we find by Joshua, so we find by Samuel, that before they hand over the people, they bring them into a covenant with God. And that's the simple shot before we go to what the Zohar says about it being Rosh Hashanah, the simple shot is that Moshe Rabbeinu is returning, so to speak, the children of God that was placed under his shepherdness. He was a shepherd, and therefore he was returning them with a covenant and handing it over to Joshua. Now, he starts by saying, you stand here all today, and then he goes on to enumerate the 10 different levels. And he talks about, leaders, elders. He talks about children, women, the converts, the woodchoppers, and then the water carriers, all the different levels. And we're going to talk about that today. Why does he start with the all-inclusive, you are all? And then, no, he actually goes into the differences. And he tells us that God is bringing us into a covenant today. 
And he tells us that we should know that this covenant God's making not only with us, but with even those who are not here today, meaning the offspring, okay? And, and I want to just share with you again, and we're going to talk about this again in the, when, we, when we focus on that one theme that we're going to hone in on. But when you look at a person, not the way they stand as an individual, but you look at them seeing all the offspring that comes forth from them together with them, which is the deeper meaning of the teaching in the Talmud and Tractic Sanhedrin, that whoever saves a single life has saved an entire world. Because by saving this one individual, you've also saved the generations and generations and generations of offspring that will come forth from him. So God's telling us it's not just you. Moses is telling us that God is not just bringing you individually who are standing here with me in the desert on the border of what will become Israel by the Jordan River, but rather all your offspring are included in this. And then he goes ahead and he tells us, warning us again to be careful to eliminate, eradicate, annihilate all the different types of forms of idolatry that we will come across when we cross the, uh, the, the uh, Jordan River. And he's warning us something very interesting. He's warning us over here in verse 18 that last week we heard 98 different what we call curses, rebukes, retributions. And then he says here, and it will be the, any person who will hear these curses. But he'll feel blessed in his heart. Lame or saying, Shalom I'm not worried. There'll only be peace for me. I will follow the ways of my heart. And he says that it will be so that I will satisfy my thirst. And that means that there's going to be someone who listens to last week's Torah portion and says, ah, I'm not worried. It'll be okay. So I want to just focus for a moment on a deeper meaning to this. What does this mean? What this may mean is, and it's explained by commentaries, that a person will say, listen, if I sign up to this covenant, then I'm going to have to answer for all the things in the covenant that I didn't do. But truth be said, let's look around us. We're one nation with 613 commandments, and upon that, literally thousands upon thousands of rabbinical buffer zones. Why do we need this? Look at the other nations. The other nations are doing well, prospering, and they don't have to worry about whether they're eating lobster or gefilte fish. They don't have these issues. So you know what? I'm going to opt on not entering this covenant and I'm going to go my own merry way. So to speak, in the name of the wordings of our sages say, why do I need this trouble? 
you know what? I won't be from the chosen nation, but it'll be like in Fiddler on the Roof, you know? Choose someone else every once in a while. And thus the verse here is saying that you should know that that is not an option. God didn't give us the choice to choose whether we do or don't want. Now, I want to take this even to the next level of commentaries, what they say about this. There are different ways of being righteous and spiritual. There are spiritual Gentiles. And they have what would seemingly be an easier route to spirituality. Whether it be abstinence, whether it be, you know, the monks and whatever, there are enough, there are enough spiritual Gentiles out there that live a spiritual life without having to deal with 613 commandments and everything that comes along with it. And thus what God is saying here to us, he's telling us that our souls belong to a specific program. And for us, the spirituality of just being good people, of just not hurting people, of helping people, of not overindulging, for us, our souls, that is not enough. The male Jewish soul needs to experience putting on tefillin. The female Jewish soul needs to experience lighting the Shabbat candles. The Jewish body needs to experience the kosher dietary laws. And thus, this is the deeper meaning of what these verses are telling us. You're going to go into the land, you're going to see other ways. And some of those other ways for the Gentiles of the world is righteous and spiritual and blessed. And you may say, so why can't I be that type of spirituality? Why can't I just be a mensch? Why do I have to also have all these obligations between God and I, I and God, which has nothing what to do with being a mensch? And that's what Moses is telling us here. There's a covenant going on. This isn't just about being the best human being you can be. There's a covenant going on between us and God and God and us. And thus our soul is literally genetically programmed to be aligned with the mitzvot and the Torah. Now, with this being said, we're moving along where Moses tells us, and if we do not follow in this covenant, it won't be good. There will be great anger of God. And so much so that the next generations will ask, what's up with these Jews? What did they do that God has put them through so much? What could these people have done that they went through a Spanish Inquisition? And they went through a Holocaust. And earlier than that, they went through the Roman destru the destruction of the Holy Temple and what took place there. I mean, what's, what's going on here? 
Now, here too, I want to stop for a moment. And I want to share what the depth of this really should mean to us as we stand before Rosh Hashanah. The verse says, for God to say, you know what? This just isn't working. It just isn't working between you and us, us and you. So uh, why, why don't we just, you know, let's have an amicable divorce. And that's it. God's angry at us. He's done with us. And that's it. And actually, the Talmud tells us that the Jews said this to the prophet. After the destruction, when the prophet came to admonish us and tell us, you got to go back, you got to do the right thing. And it says the Jewish people answered, what, what, what do you want from us? God divorced us. Does an ex-husband have any rights or demands on his ex-wife once he has divorced? And the prophet goes back to God and tells God this. And God responds, show me the divorce contract with which I have divorced your parents. Now let's go back to what's going on here. Was there to be an option that God says enough is enough and we're going to end this relationship? Then there wouldn't be all these retributions the 49 times in Leviticus and the 98 times in, in Deuteronomy. Why do we need this? God's, God's big enough to handle that this relationship didn't work out and didn't move on. But the reason of this is because Moses is telling us that divorce isn't an option here. It's a covenant. A covenant means two halves to one whole. And that's why the verse right after that goes on and says that at the end, when all these things happen to you, the outcome will be that you will return and repent. History has shown us again and again and again that not only does God not have the option to walk out on us, but we don't have the option to walk out on him. We will try, we will do things, we will get fed up, we will do things purposely, vengefully, this has happened. This has happened. I have met, I, I, don't, I shouldn't say I met, I know of a Jew who after the Holocaust purposely married a German woman, wouldn't step into a synagogue. A whole story with a rabbi in Boca. They were driven by pain and anger. But it's amazing that that person, before, by the end of his life, when he was already in stage four on cancer, it just, it's crazy how it happened that at the end, my friend, Rabbi Ruby knew, got to know him. He ended up coming to shul. And at the sukkah, he was uh, crying and he was screaming at Ruby, what are you doing to me? I walked away from this. And then he sat down and it literally, Ruby told me, he stood up after a couple of chayim screaming at the rabbi, I hate you. I hate you for doing this to me. I walked away from this after what happened in the Holocaust, after what my eyes experienced and what happened to my family. And then he sat back down, a couple of molachayims, he started singing, and then he stood up, he said, but what can I tell you? I love you. This is who I am. That's 
the way Jews are. I had the same experience with a Jew living in San Susi Estates who married out and told me that he converted out of Judaism. And then exactly to the day, exactly to the day, as spooky as this may sound, one year before he passed away, he reached out to me. And right now his plaque is hanging in the shul in the memorial board, Kaddish is said for him. It's just the way we're programmed. We cannot walk away from God and God cannot walk away from us. And thus there is no option but to hash it out. There's going to be the sins. There's going to be the retributions. And at the end, there's going to be the teshuva. And now I want to take this even one step further. If you look in verse 3, chapter 20, 20, chapter 30, verse 3, it says, not that God will bring you back, but God will come back with you. And the sages pick up on this and say, what do you mean? Vishov. So it's a Vaheshiv. He will bring back. Why Vishov? He will come back. And the answer is that when we say that God and us cannot walk out on each other, what that means is that when God drives us into exile, he's driving himself into exile with us. That is the relationship we have with God. And that's the depths of this covenant. And it's with this certainty that we approach the high holidays. There is no option of this not working out. And then he goes on and uh, he, he goes on in the verses to explain the mitzvah of teshuva. And he says as follows, this mitzvah of repentance is not separated from you. It's not distant from you. It's not in the heaven that you should ask yourself, how can I get to heaven and become so spiritual to make up for all the sins I've ever done? And he says, it's not across the seas. It's exceedingly close to you in your mouth, in your heart to do. Now here I'm going to share with you two amazing teachings on this verse. Number one, he said, the Alter Rebbe explains that it may not be close to us to control our hearts. However, the verse says, in your mind and your heart and action. And what it means is thought, speech, and action. The human being has the power to think contrary to what comes so easily to him to think. And thus a pessimist can work against his pessimism and force himself to think optimistically. He can force his mouth to say what he doesn't mean. In other words, he could be extremely angry at this person, and yet he can force his mouth to speak words of peace. And the same with action. He or she can be bent on getting even. And he, can, he or she can actually control their action and do the exact opposite. Thus, it's exceedingly close to us as human beings, regardless of where our mind is wired and our heart feels, we can think, speak, and act 
quite contrary to this. And then I want to share with you another thing. Teshuva. Teshuva seems like an impossible thing because I have to have such deep remorse and such deep feelings for God to, so to speak, extract my soul from the embodiment of the, of the prosecuting angels that were created by my sins. And when you learn what teshuva is, you can say to yourself, this is in heaven. This is beyond me. I am done. I did what I did. I'll never be able to reach such a level of remorse, regret, and purity as to extract my soul from being stuck within the evil of my past. So here I want to share with you a story of a man. I'm going to tell you the details of the story. I think I once shared it with you before. The man's name was Eliezer, the son of Dardaya. And the Talmud tells us who this man was. It says that this man was such a sinner and had no merits to himself. And he, he specifically sinned in the area of lewdness and inappropriateness. And the Talmud says that there wasn't a single woman of ill repute in the entire vicinity where he was that he didn't sin with. And then one day the Talmud says he found out about this one woman. So he went all the way there to sin with her. Now I'm just giving you the details of the story as it was historically, and then we'll talk about it. And it said that at that point he passed gas. I remember if he passed gas or she passed gas. I don't have to look up the Torah again in the Talmud. But whatever it was, she responded to him, you are so damned that just like you could never bring that gas back into your body, so too you will never be able to bring your soul back into the bosom of God. For some reason, this completely dominated him to a deep sense of remorse. And by the way, I have met such people. <laughs> I've met such people that their road to recovery started with their dealer telling them, you know, you're lost. And <laughs> so, so it happened here. And the Talmud goes on to say that he asked heaven and earth, please defend me. He asked the tree, he kept it. He went through everything, all creations, please save me. And each one said, I can't. There's nothing we can do to save you. And then it says that Lezeb ben Durdaya saw that there's no one who can help him. It's just him. And it says he placed his head between his knees, like, you know, bent down, completely broken, and cried hysterically. And it actually says that his soul left him in that experience of doing teshuva. And when this happened, a voice came out from heaven and said, Alaza ben Derdaya entered into heaven. And when Rebbe, the great teacher, the one who composed the Mishnah, he said, 
Rejoice he who has acquired his world to come in one moment. Now, I want to share with you, Teshuva, while it is omnipotent, it is practical. It is obtainable. And that's what these verses are saying. And no, you and I do not have to experience the teshuva that Eliezer ben Derdaya experienced. However, you and I need to experience the teshuva that you need to experience and that I need to experience. And that is, first and foremost, a statement of identification. In other words, when we come to realize that we are not what we do, we are what we are. And regardless of what I've done in the past, nevertheless, I am a Jew. And I am connected to God. And just because I turned my back on him doesn't mean that he walked away. And thus, I want to share with you from the story of Rabbi Lozab and Durdaya to a practical story that happened driving along the beach in Miami Beach. So there's this older couple driving along the beach and they get to a red light and they stop. And pulling up next to them is a convertible a young boy and girl couple, and the girl is not sitting in the passenger seat, but sitting in the center between the two seats with her head on his shoulder. The older woman turns to her husband and says, you remember when we used to sit and drive like that? In other words, she's been moaning. What happened to our, our love in our relationship? And the husband tells her, Honey, you do realize that I didn't move my shoulder. You took your head off my shoulder. My shoulder is exactly where it's always been. That is what God is telling us. We think this whole relationship is over. He'll never forgive us. And then we're so angry at him for the retribution that we went through and the suffering and the poverty and whatever we went through. And so we think, well, like just bemoaning to God. Remember you and I, we used to get along. When I was a kid, I loved you, God. I was so proud of being Jewish. I was so happy. Yom Kippur had such feelings to it. Rosh Hashanah, chauffeur. It wasn't mechanical. It, it, was, it was, I loved it. But look at us today, God. We're not like them. And we have to hear God's answer. He doesn't admonish us. He doesn't tell us it's over. Listen, we're just playing house now. We're staying together because of the kids. No. God's telling us the simplest way to change it and bring back the intimacy. And what is that? God tells us, I didn't move my shoulder. The only thing that has to be done is, are you willing to put your head back on my shoulder, says God. That is teshuva. And thus we're being taught that in thought, speech, and action, it's not far. Just do the practical thing. 
put your head back on God's shoulder. And from there, the intimacy and everything will re-arise and, and more fiercely than ever before, as is always with relationships. The after is so much stronger than the before. And then in the next Torah portion, Moses goes ahead and uh, prepares Joshua. Moses wrote the Torah. He wrote one Torah and he gave it to his tribe of Levi because they were the ones responsible for adhering that the, the teachings, and I don't mean they're the only ones run for adhering the mitzvot, but adhering that, the, you know, everyone should do. They were the teachers. And thus all the tribes came running and said, whoa, 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 why are you giving it to your tribe? We also were at Mount Sinai and we received it and God gave it to us. And Moses was actually extremely happy to hear that. And Moses went to work and we are taught that on the last day of his life, Moses wrote 13 Sifrei Torah and gave one to each one of the tribes. Okay. And then, and then Moses goes ahead and uh, he tells us that he's going to write this song, which is the portion of Hazinu. And uh, that's pretty much where this goes. He gives us that last mitzvah of Hakel gathered together on the seventh year, the Sukkot of the sabbatical year. On the second day, they would, uh, the king would they would build a platform. The king would come out and read from the Torah portion to once again imbue the nation with the fear of God. Now, I want to go back to the opening Torah portion, and I want to just share with you a thought about Rosh Hashanah. And um, next week, God willing, what we'll do next week is I'm going to go ahead and use this platform to give my sermon. I will record it and send it out because on the holiday itself, due to the COVID and people wearing masks, I don't, I don't want to keep people waiting. We just want to go through the services. So I'm going to, re I'm going to go ahead and deliver it next week um, in this Zoom class. And then I'll just send out the recording so people can hear it. So for right now, I want to just share a little bit about Rosh Hashanah. I shared with you that the Zohar says, Atem Nitzavim Hayoyim, you stand fast today. Kulchem, all of you, Lifnei Hashem before God. Right there, he, he included the entire nation. But for some reason, Moses does not suffice with this. But rather, he goes ahead and he says that we're talking about all the levels of the Jews, and he lists all the differences, all the different levels from the highest levels to the lowest levels. Now, the question is why? And the question is, why do we read the portion of Nitzavim before Rosh Hashanah? On a mystical level, it must be because within the Torah portion of Netzavim, God is giving us the way in which to ensure that Rosh Hashanah will be blessed and will all be in the, inscribed in the book of life, in the book of health, in the book of wealth, in the book of, of goodness and peace. So what is the secret? On top of that, we know, according to the teachings, that the whole secret lies in the beginning. Thus, in these verses right here, we already have all the secrets of how to obtain a beautiful, peaceful, and blessed upcoming year on Rosh Hashanah. And the secret is as follows. The way it works is that God, every year, 
gives the universe a one-year lease, after which the ray of divinity, which shone forth on last Rosh Hashanah to vivify and sustain us all for a year, returns back into the source. And now we need to once again start the process to once again convince God, arouse God to want to give us another year of sustenance. And how do we do that? And the question goes even greater. How can anything finite beings like us, how can anything that we would do make any difference to the omnipotent infinite God? As the prophet says, and if you have done justice, what have you given him? And if you have sinned, what have you done to him? Does anything we do really have an effect on God? And if it doesn't have an effect on God, because we are considered so minute and naught in the face of the omnipotent, omnipresent, infinite God, then what's this whole thing of us arousing God to want to be our king for another year? And to understand this answer is to understand what's going on here in the verse. The soul is truly a piece of God. So truly a piece of God that it's primordial and exists within God itself. And then later, God sends this soul down. And in order for this soul to be able to connect with a finite body, the soul goes through different levels of contraction, concealment, coverings, until there's the lower levels of the soul in which there can be a ray of a ray that shines into the mind of the human and from there vivifies the entire body. And therefore, how is it that we can connect to God on Rosh Hashanah with the ultimate, the ultimate moda'ani, the acknowledgement of God as our king to the point where God says, yes, I want to be their king. The answer is that we have to once again connect with the most inner essence core of our being, which is not the soul of a human, but a piece of God. Now, once again, this sounds Kabbalistic, out there, okay for the amazing, saintly, righteous people. But for you and I, really, what's that supposed to mean? You know, we wake up in the morning and we have to do what we have to do and we have to eat and we have to earn a living and we deal with everything we see and the temptations that it causes and all the other stuff. But wait, what do you mean that we have to shed all of that and reach into the very core of our existence, that naked one piece of God within us. So the verse is telling us the simple way of how to do this. The most practical way is, how do you look at your fellow human being? If you look at your fellow human being as I am I and you are you, and really, 
you know, we'll be civil to each other, but we're not the same. You know, you don't belong in my circles. I don't belong in your circles. We're different. So then all you're seeing is the lowest levels of the soul. However, if you can see that ultimately speaking, you and I at our very core being are two identical, not even identical. We are one and the same piece of God. And thus we start understanding what Maimonides says. Maimonides talks about, you know, all humans created equal. Well, is that true? Some humans are created very talented. Some humans are created very intellectual. Some humans are created very powerful. Some humans, I mean, everyone is different. We all have our differences. You know, are we really going to say all humans are created equal? The person who, who, who's, uh, you know, for living for a life in, the, in the, you know, collecting scraps. And, and then there's the, the people who are, you know, whatever, all the way up there. So Maimonides explains that the reason why we perceive people as not equal is because that's what society needs in order to function. For society to function, you're going to need to have a doctor, you're going to need to have a lawyer, you're going to need to have a rabbi, you're going to need to have a housewife, you're going to need to have a house father, you're going to need to have garbage collectors, you're going to need people that are just infatuated with with viruses and 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 what you know are trying to understand it and there's going to be others that are going to try to understand bugs and there's going to be others that are all focused on astronomy god made us different because we need all these details to survive as a one unit as a civilization and thus when we really understand that you and I are two, not pieces of one. We are one in the core existence of God. Then I realize that our differences are here so that we can be a complete functioning human being. And thus we realize that every organ in the body is there for a purpose. But is every organ the heart? Is every organ the brain? No. We have nails that we cut. We have hair that we take haircuts. Is that any less significant? And the answer is that each part of us, if we really believe that we are all one, each part of us completes us. And thus the secret of Rosh Hashanah is not to see ourselves as separate fingers on the bottom, but as one hand and as one human and as one piece of God. Thus, let's go back to the verse. First and foremost, you have to realize if you want to enter the covenant with God, you have to stop seeing differences between you and others. You're all here together. And then when you realize that, you can embrace the beauty that we're all expressively different in our mind, heart, talents, desires, all of that, so that we can be one functioning unit. And when we see in our differences 
the oneness of God that we have within us, then we're in a place where we can ask God to be our king. And then we have the blessings of God. As the, the ending of the Talmud, of the entire Talmud says, that God could not find a vessel that could contain his omnipotent blessings for us until he found peace, until he found wholeness within us. When there's peace within us, when we see how we exist, not just down here below, but up in the primordial thought of God, then we are fit and capable of receiving God's sovereignty, which along with that comes God's blessings and God's protection. People, l'shana tova umutuka. Next week, God willing, we will use this platform for the uh, sermon, Rosh Hashanah sermon for all who want to join us.